Your fever is high and the pressure to log in at work is too. But when you finally decide to take care of you, there's Instacart. Just because that one perfect coworker of yours is attending all meetings, camera on while she's sneezing, coughing, and aching, doesn't mean you have to do the same. Take it from us. Trying to stay on top of things will only get you further behind. Instead, get everything from tissues and teas to cough suppressants and comforting soups delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. If anyone needs anything, they can just redirect their questions to that one perfect coworker. Worker of yours. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get Cox Internet powered by fiber with America's fastest download speeds. It's Internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Analysis by Ookla speed test intelligence data. Fixed median download speeds. US Q3 2023. Welcome back to uh, Second Hour of Amplify, where our guest is, um, she's back with us again, Dr. May Elise Cannon, talking about her latest book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age. We've been talking about the whole... Um, issue of race now after trying to give a foundation to it through an understanding of biblical justice and the and the gospel how biblical justice is the manifestation of the full gospel of Christ that's woven intricately throughout the entire gospel and it raises questions like uh, what should the relationship between the church and politics then look like there are different theories she points out and she believes that it is critically important for us not to put U.S. nationalism on a parallel with our allegiance to God and the kingdom. And, and then there is uh, uh, the concept of, especially as we have recently talked, we've uh, celebrated Memorial Day, Flag Day, Independence Day is coming, uh, what is meant by inclusive patriotism. So that, that's something she talks about. I, I can't, we can't talk about everything tonight. But I want to I want to finish uh, speaking with her a little bit more about the whole concept of of race, and then hopefully be able to touch on some of the other richness in, in the book, uh, some of the other issues. So that uh, I've selected this book for you uh, to consider, to reflect on, and uh, perhaps you want to do that when you can understand a little more. It's not just about race, even though that's so critical. At this particular point, I shouldn't say just about. <laughs> That's one of the things that it is concerned about. Um, but there are other issues that are affecting us also. But as we ended the first hour, uh, she talked about a group of uh, selected five steps that pastors and church communities can take to admonish against racism and address the concept of uh, white supremacy uh, the, the first is encourage participation in the festivities, remembrances, awareness events, artistic expressions, and historical displays of the various minority ethnicities within your congregation and the local community in which you reside. Second, give strong, clear responses to the issues surrounding local and national incidents of racial conflict, especially where racially charged threats harm police or political action where the tragedy has come to the fore. That's, that's certainly what we're engaged in right at this particular moment. Third, promote regular active and intentional personal fellowship of saints across ethnic lines. Such happenings 
often involving the sharing of a favorite ethnic meal by the host family. So we come together. Fourth, avoid denying the reality of racial insensitivity within your own fellowship, regardless of the numerical assessment of the ethnic diversity in your congregation. And finally, in public gatherings and private moments, pray for those. And uh, May has already talked a little bit about that. Pray for those who are contending directly with episodes and establishments of racism and white supremacy. Anything that you would like to add to those five recommendations? Um, maybe just a little story, you know, the, the first one about encouraging participation in festivities and remembrances. Um, I had some dear friends who were part of a chaplaincy program with me, two African-American gentlemen on the south side of Chicago, and they attended the same church together, and they invited me to attend um, an African holiday, and, you know, the tradition was to wear a dress from different parts of Africa, and they shared a meal together. And I had the great, great privilege of going and visiting their church, and, you know, we were serving the meal, and I'll never forget one of the women in the church said to me, you know, it was an all-black church on the south side of Chicago, she said to me it was the first time in her entire life, and she was probably in her 50s, she said it was the first time in her entire life a white person had ever served her. Wow. And I I just thought that was so profound because, you know, for me, I was a privileged guest. It was such an honor to be there. You know, I didn't go there to do any acts of service. But um, just the the simple act of stepping outside of our comfort zone, um, I think, is one of the ways that we can start to break down barriers. It's one of the ways that white people can start to understand the realities of systemic racism. And then we have to do the advocacy and activism, uh, you know, to address these systems. Um, Let's um, talk a little bit more about uh, racism as you address it and then touch on uh, some of the other uh, parts uh, in your book. Um, Yesterday, you point out June 20th is World Refugee Day. I don't think I heard anything about it on the news at all. I can't say that I was aware of that, but when I saw it, I circled it because I knew that we would be together on the 21st. And it's one of the issues that you address. What are some of the central issues about global uh, immigration and battles at the border? Well, one of the things I really sought to do in this book is I had never done a theological consideration of different Christian perspectives towards immigration. And certainly we see that it is one of the most divisive issues in our politics today, but it's one of the most divisive issues in our churches today. Many conservative Christians have the viewpoint that um, to be faithful to Christ, we have to be obedient to the law. And they have very conservative perspectives uh, towards the issue of immigration um, and would say that the law is the highest good when it comes to the question of whether or not we should welcome immigrants at our borders. Um, And so this chapter of the book, I actually go through um, 
theological arguments from both sides of the spectrum. And so looking at what the scriptures have to teach about obedience to the law and what the scriptures have to teach about welcoming our neighbor. Uh, And so actually the gentleman um, who I highlight as the scholar who has a perspective about obedience to the law. His name is James Hoffmeyer, and he was my Old Testament professor Uh when I did seminary uh, at Trinity way back in the day. So I was quite interested that this is an issue he's written on quite a bit. And then um, Daniel Carroll at Wheaton was the scholar who I wrote about and quoted in terms of his scriptural analysis of what it means to really welcome the neighbor. Um, And so that chapter seems seeks and attempts to dive deeply into that question of what does the Bible teach us about um, our borders and about immigration? And the reason you feel so important is you write that refugees are one of the most vulnerable populations as they are at risk of, at greater risk of violence and children who are often out of school are more likely to be exploited. And you write, while the United States has long had a reputation as being a country of immigrants, the racial stratification and poor treatment of immigrants of color must be acknowledged as a darker part of that history. That's Uh, right. This is not a new issue. That's exactly right. So one of the first acts that discriminated on immigrants of color was the Chinese Exclusion Act, where, you know, in the history of the U.S., the railroads in the West were built by Chinese immigrants. And yet there were all types of laws meant uh, to um, keep the Chinese from having you know, equal rights to white Americans. Um, and so that was the Chinese Exclusion Act, for example. Let's uh, go back now and touch upon some of the other issues that you uh, write about so well. Uh, part two is about uh, poverty, and you write about both uh, global poverty and domestic poverty and global immigration battles at the, at, at the border. Tell us a little bit of what, what is poverty And what is the role of the church in responding to it? Sure. So by definition, it used to be that extreme poverty or abject poverty was um, people who live on less than one U.S. dollar a day. Um, Because of inflation, I think that number is like $1.75 or $2 a day now. And one of the things that's really encouraging and should give us hope is that the battle against extreme poverty has made great progress over the past several decades. So, you know, 10 or more years ago, the statistics of the number of children that die every day from preventable causes was about 30,000 children a day. And, you know, this was for things like diarrhea or dehydration or illnesses that we have, you know, treatments for. Um, And that statistic, um, which is really about people, not the numbers, uh, is that over the last several years, Um, the number of children uh, who die of preventable causes every day has decreased by about 50%. So that statistic today is about 15,000 children a day. And I think in large part, the reason there's been so much progress on addressing abject poverty around the world has um, at least in part been because of the way the church has decided to engage. You have major Christian organizations like World Vision that are seeking to end and alleviate global poverty and global extreme poverty. And so the fact that progress is being made in that regard should very much be an encouragement to us. 
Is it possible that we'll be able to eradicate poverty? I don't know that poverty will ever be eradicated. I mean, you started out, you know, an hour ago talking about uh, the battle between good and evil. And I think until Christ comes again and until the world is fully redeemed, that many of these issues, we may make progress, and I hope we'll make great progress, um, but I don't think they'll ever completely disappear until the full redemption of the world. And you note that uh, some wars of poverty have failed in the past and that poverty seems um, to be so disproportionately uh, a disproportionate effect it has on communities of color. How then uh, are followers of Jesus called to respond uh, to these horrible problems that people are facing? Sure. Well, as it relates to poverty, there's so many just little things we can do. So pollution is one of the greatest um, ills that affects poor communities around the world. And so just by carrying, you know, a reusable water bottle and not using plastic water bottles, that's a way that we can practice environmental justice, but it's a way that we can actually fight global pollution. You know, things like changing the light bulbs in your house to, um, what are they called, LEDs, you know, more energy efficient light sources is a way that we can save energy, which then uh, helps contribute to, um, you know, the preservation of resources. Um, We've been talking, I've been hearing the ads, you know, over the show about uh, the realities of COVID-19 and this global coronavirus pandemic. And I think one of the things that's so important for us to understand is that the communities that were vulnerable before the virus are the ones being the most affected. So I actually wrote an article that that's entitled the coronavirus does discriminate because the virus, while anyone can get sick, whether you're rich or poor, the poor, you know, have a much harder time practicing social distance. You know, the extreme poor don't have access to clean water Um, You know, so basic things like social distancing and things we're practicing in the United States to try to quell the spread of the virus, impoverished communities don't have those privileges. Let's um, talk then about uh, the chapter, part four, and uh, it's broken down into uh, Me Too, women in the workplace and women in the church, gender violence. Uh, what does the Bible have to say about women and abuse, uh, women in the workplace, leadership in the church, and advocating for women? There's a lot of uh, issues that you raise there. And um, you write that sexual violence against women and discrimination toward the female sex has a long history within the United States predating the founding of our country Violence against women of color, particularly Native Americans and black women who were enslaved, was a mechanism by which white men could dominate and use their power to control and oppress, and that the story of African-American women in the United States rests in the intersection of race and and gender. Tell us a little bit then about, and you have many stories, I should say many stories through throughout the book. Art, mm-hmm. you, you you tell we could we could do a whole program just on your stories and let let them tell tell the story, but um, 
Tell us a little bit about uh, gender violence and what then the Bible has to say about women and abuse. Sure. Well, you know, we were talking about poverty, and I think, you know, one of the things that's so important to understand about poverty is the people who are the most affected by poverty are women and children. And so women and mothers carry such a responsibility in the United States and around the world in terms of care of children. But when there's a lack of resources, women are often those who are you know, left to make ends meet or left to take care of children without, you know, having adequate resources to be able to feed them. And so, you know, I think when we look at the Bible, um, often there have been passages that are used to justify the discrimination of women. Um, You know, passages that esteem women in traditional roles, which I think is a good and beautiful thing. You know, I would argue that the Bible is not exclusive in that regard, that when we read about, you know, Corinthians and the gifts and spiritual gifts of people within the church, that both men and women were given spiritual gifts. You know, there's passages that talk about the uh, sons and daughters will prophesy. And so when we look at the distribution of gifts, you know, those who are meant to be teachers and those who are um, given gifts of prophecy, that those gifts are distributed to men and women and to all people. And in that regard, a part of our spiritual faithfulness is allowing men and women to use their gifts in the context of the church, to use their gifts in the context of the redemption of the world, um, you know, to use our gifts not only in our own families and in our own homes, but in our communities as well. And you point out, however, that uh, um, many churches believe that a woman can only be in positions of power if a man has authority over her. Yes, yes. You know, so I'm ordained. Um, I'm ordained by one of the few evangelical denominations that ordains women. And, I mean, I don't know if I wrote all my stories in this book, but, you know, when I was serving as a chaplain in a hospital, it was a Catholic hospital, and so I was asked to wear a clerical collar because I was often, um, you know, it was misunderstood that I was a nurse or a social worker. And so I was wearing a clerical collar, and I had a surgeon, you know, and this was probably in, in sometime in the winter. It was like in February or March. And I had a surgeon say to me on the elevator, what is this, Halloween? Ooh. Um, you know, and I, I had another doctor tell me that my role, um, my role was to have children and that I should go home and take care of my husband and have babies that, you know, what was I doing working you know, as a minister of the gospel in this hospital? Right. And so these are just assumptions, you know, and that was in a, I mean, a Catholic workplace, but um, that was out in society. That wasn't even in the context of the church. Uh, And so there's a lot of assumptions. And what just breaks my heart is there are so many incredible girls, you know, and teenagers and young women and adults who are in environments where they're not free. And what I believe about the gospel is that the gospel of Christ is a liberative gospel. It is a gospel that sets us free. It sets our souls free, you know, because of faith in Christ. But I also believe that a part of the liberation is that we're able to use our gifts to build up the body of Christ and to love our neighbor and to love our enemy. And so when I think about those young women and, you know, these little girls, my hope and prayer is that they would know how gifted they are and how much society needs them to use their gifts 
to help make the world a better place. It makes you wonder how much uh, the church would be better, how the world would be much better if indeed people were able to use their gifts, the gifts, the very gifts that God gave to them. And you write write that uh, within the local church, uh, small and large, we must be attentive to unrealistic expectations placed on pastors who are often overly esteemed and in the spotlight. Pastors, especially men, have often have not been trained and equipped on how to handle situations of sexual harassment and abuse within the church. And certainly that is true. Whenever we come back after we take this final break, we're going to talk about the final part of your book, the fifth part, which is um, 21st century divines. Uh, and uh, you you mentioned that this chapter was terribly difficult for you uh, to write for many reasons. We're going to ask you why as we talk about the complexities of sexuality, about uh, religious freedom and uh, other issues. And so we're going to be taking our final break as we are speaking with uh, Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon talking about her book Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age. Welcome back to uh, the final segment of Amplify with Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon talking about her latest book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, subtitled Comprehensive Justice in the Complicated Age. We began by speaking uh, about biblical justice and the gospel, God's justice and prophetic uh, advocacy, politics and the gospel. We've talked uh, a little bit then about... uh, a little more about race than we've had time for the others. And that's part three. Part two of the book is about poverty. Part four, we've just said a little bit to, to give you a taste. Uh, there's so much more that uh, to learn from the book uh, about gender. And now we're going to talk about the final chapter, which is the 21st century divides. And uh, she writes, this chapter provides an overview of key passages of Scripture and what they have to say about sexuality, and it wrestles with how churches make decisions about practice. This is by no means the end of the story on these questions, but my hope and prayer is that God would provide wisdom, guidance, grace, and clarity as we seek to honor God's commandments and teachings and to be witnesses of love and mercy of Christ in the world. And I Sure, you would want you would feel that way about every chapter in the book. When we, when you talk about the complexities of, of sexuality, what is it that we can learn um, about sexuality from the Bible? Yes. Well, this was the first time I did a deep, deep dive personally. Um, often, I'm asked publicly what my perspective is, you know, about what the Bible has to say regarding. Um, sexuality and marriage. And, you know, my first response has always been that regardless of where people sit theologically, the way the church has responded to the LGBTQ plus community has been abhorrent, that we have to ask for forgiveness for the ways that we've isolated, ostracized. You know, when Jesus says, love your neighbor, 
and love your enemy, that regardless of our theological perspective, we have not done well in responding, you know, to encounters with that particular community. Um, But this was the first time I'd ever uh, dug deeply into the theology. And I would say I went into it uh, very much thinking that I knew what the scriptures were going to say. And I came out of it feeling like the theological questions are actually much more complex than I had presumed. And so I won't give it away. I'll tell people, read the chapter. The book's available on Audible. You can get it. Um, that way, um, you know, I know it's available on ebooks as well. And I think it's really worth looking at. I really tried to do uh, practice due diligence and give a strong argument for multiple perspectives in terms of what the Bible has to say about the questions of sexuality and marriage. Um, but I left feeling um, like the situation's actually more complex than I had presumed. Right, and issues about uh, biblical sexuality, um, what the Bible has to say about same-sex attraction and intimacy, about uh, Christian perspectives on gender identity, um, all very difficult questions. But then the the chapter on loving our neighbors, I think that's what it was in this chapter that you thought was terribly difficult to write. Why, Why was that? Well, I think in terms of marriage and sexuality, the church of today is being destroyed over this issue and and over, and I don't mean to say just this issue because, you know, there's many people who would self-identify with that community. And so we're seeing church denominations split. And, you know, my denomination, the Evangelical Covenant, we're too small to split, right? If we, if we split, we'll die. And Um, One of the things I've always loved about the covenant is we have this expression that says walking hand in hand without seeing eye to eye. And I wish that there was a way that we could um, figure out how to come alongside of the LGBTQ plus community in a loving way, regardless of individual theological perspectives, um, because I'm, I'm concerned that the witness of the church is at stake if we don't figure out a way to do better. Right, you're right. We should be in relationship with people with whom we disagree theologically, and we should yes, enter these. I hope re- so. <laughs> <laughs> we should enter these relationships with good faith not out of a desire to change someone's mind or convert someone to our way of thinking, but rather to learn, be in fellowship, and allow the Holy Spirit to act in transformative ways in our own lives and in the lives of others. This process is messy, but necessary for the body of Christ to appropriately move forward in pursuit of both faithfulness and unity. Now, you are involved, your executive director of the churches for the Middle East Peace. And so tell us something about um, the about the Middle East, Israel and Palestine, the humanitarian crisis in, in Gaza and uh, about anti-Semitism yeah. and Christian Jewish relations. Yes. Well, uh, the reason I included the discussion about Israel and Palestine in 21st century divides is it's one of the top issues. Um, that also divides the church. And, you know, we have an election coming up in November, 
and the question of candidates' perspectives via the Israel in terms of U.S. foreign policy is going to be front and center, as it always is around presidential elections. So we often say that questions related to Israel are not only foreign policy issues, they're domestic issues. Um, and the history of the conflict and the history of the realities there is, you know, too much to go into in the scope of the few minutes that we have left. But I think one of the things that's really important for people to understand is that the realities of the geopolitics of the division between Israelis and Palestinians is that it's digressing and getting worse as opposed to getting better. So there's been numerous wars, you know, from the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. In 1967, there was another war. And one of the results of the 67 war is that some of the territory that Israel took control over, uh, East Jerusalem, the West Bank, Gaza, and the Golan Heights from Syria, that that territory, all of those different plots of land, all have different statuses according to the Israeli government and according to international law. So the territory in the Golan from Syria, for example, Israel annexed it, uh, and the U.S. government, just under this Trump administration, acknowledged that annexation of the Golan, whereas the international community does not acknowledge that annexation. And this is a critical question for us today because the Israeli government um, have a vote that's pending in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, at the beginning of July, where there's a proposal and a discussion about whether or not Israel should annex parts of the West Bank, which would be detrimental to the future peace between Israelis and Palestinians. It's illegal by international law. Um, and the Trump administration up until this point has been supportive of annexation. Um, and I would argue that it is not in the best interest, certainly of Palestinians, but nor is it in the best interest of Israelis as well. Uh, yes, um, certainly we can't uh, get into all the issues that you bring forth so so well <laughs> uh, in, a, in, in a program. But you do ask, you do wonder how should... Uh, American Christians think about the conflict between is Israelis and Palestinians, uh, and there are there are Christians among them. Uh, we need to understand. Yes. Yeah, we need to understand how problematic our historical engagement has been with both the Jewish and Palestinian communities. That's right. That's right. And I would point people. Um, our website www.cmep.org churches for middle east peace we have lots of resources we'd love to be connected you know we'd love for people to support our work um, and i also have a podcast that parallels this book that's called hashtag activism that has several um, episodes some of them are about the middle east um, and many of them are about racism and many of the issues we've discussed today so the last episode, I had the privilege of interviewing the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Michael Curry, about what it means to have hope uh, for racial justice in light of, um, you know, how the country's been responding since the death of George Floyd. And so that's one of my favorite episodes. So I'd invite people to listen. You indicate that historically, and I don't know that this is still true today, it isn't um, certainly prevalent in the circles and in which I minister, that Christians have perceived the enemy of Jesus as the Jews, and thus liberation meant being set free from the presumed evilness of Jewish people. Um, they find Judaism and Jews to 
uh, epitomize systematic evil? I think um, anti-Semitism, just the way that racism has been embedded in the formation of our country, anti-Semitism has been inherent and often unaddressed in Christian history. You know, so I, for example, I had a deeply moving experience in 1990, way back in the day, uh, I went and saw that very famous passion play in Germany called the Oprah Ammergau Passion Play. Oh, yes, right. It was one of the most moving experiences of my life, and I wrote a blog post on it. And then in subsequent years, as I began to do work in Israel and increased work with the Jewish community, it was pointed out to me that Oprah Ammergau is one of the most anti-Semitic communities in Germany, that there's a terrible history of that community and their treatment of the Jews. You know, and so I was asked by some of my Jewish colleagues to take that blog blog post down because they felt that I was inadvertently supporting anti-Semitism by highlighting Obramergau. Um, and so that's just one example of what that can look like. And you write that while there are differences of opinion regarding what constitutes anti-Semitism across conservative and liberal divides, commonalities also exist. Beliefs that are determining could lead to physical harm against Jews constitutes anti-Semitism. But not every problematic belief manifests anti-Semitism. A person can be accurate and wrong and not be anti-Semitic. That's right. That's right. Um, I think one of the most important features is that the current Israeli government has some policies via the Palestinians that legitimately need to be critiqued. And so in some political circles in the U.S. context today, there's an attempt to equate any criticism of the state of Israel with anti-Semitism, which just isn't true. And so we need to protect, you know, just the way freedom of speech and, you know, so many of these civil liberties that we esteem here in the U.S. context, we need to protect the right to be able to offer legitimate critiques of foreign policies of the Israeli government while saying that we stand stalwartly against anti-Semitic acts and any type of behavior, attitude, language that would be an expression of hatred towards the Jewish people. I was surprised to read this. You you write the reality is that anti-Semitism in the United States and around the world has increased in recent years and continues to do so with the rise of neo-Nazis, white nationalists, and other hate groups. Significant threats to the Jewish community exist. Christians and those of other belief systems must stand firmly in our solidarity with the Jewish community in response to anti-Semitism and its devastating effects the October 2018s, once again, at the Tree of Life Synagogue, manifest this reality in its worst form. And so it really brings it home to us. And if we thought that that were not true, uh, certainly we've experienced it in our, in our own communities, you said, around, around the world. You write about uh, loving our neighbors, and um, you suggest, you have a few suggestions, um, you indicate, from inspired uh, reading, experience, and reflection on various perspectives. And you write, first, let's be humble as we seek answers to these questions. We're talking about all that we've talked about a little bit uh, tonight. Let's be humble as we seek answers to these questions. 
Second, regardless of our individual views about the theological permissibility of same-sex relationships, we all should agree that the way the church has responded to the LGBTQ community has been abhorrent. Unfortunately, hatred toward the gay, lesbian, bisexual, queer, and transgender community is far too common in the Christian community. Uh, And third, an appropriate response is lament at the brokenness of ourselves in the world. Say a little bit about that, that third one. An appropriate response is lament at the brokenness of ourselves and the world. I believe that lament, be it grieving systemic racism, be it lament over um, injustice that we witness, um, be it grief at the way that different marginalized communities have been treated, I believe that that puts us in a posture where we're then the most ripe for transformation. So part of our goal is to be to become like Christ, to love the way that Christ taught us to love. And in order for us to be able to be transformed into the image of Christ, lament and grief over brokenness within us and in the world puts us in the place where we're most uh, susceptible to being transformed in that way. And so um, the Word of God should show us how much we are to love one another. And um, we should make every effort to do that and not just to be open, really, uh, to the Spirit. As you said, at one point, Spirit is so important in this in this whole, whole process. So our guest this evening, as we've talked about our book, Beyond Hashtag Activism, Comprehensive Justice in a Complicated Age, has been the Reverend Dr. May Elise Cannon. Uh, thank you so very much for being with us once again, and I Hope we have the opportunity to uh, continue discussion as you begin to think things through and perhaps write still uh, another book. Thank you. Good Thank to be you. with you. Thank you. Good night. God bless you and all your loved ones. Blessings to you Thank as you. well. Thank um, you. Um, let me just uh, read one final part from the book. Uh, uh, what she does so well is she points out uh, that— uh, there are many different views that people can uh, view or uh, opinions that they they determine or mindset from the Bible, reading the same passages and based on what they believe to be a sufficient study of the scriptures and understanding them, that there are so many differences still among people. And uh, it goes to show that we need to continue to try to understand the issues that face us in the world. Um, We do that um, by reading. We do it especially by reflecting on the scriptures with with people who can help us uh, to do that. But most of all, she suggests we do it by love. We do it by just trying to understand people, to listen to people and to their particular views. And so um, she writes that the entirety of this book has sought to draw us toward a deeper understanding of God's heart for justice. God's heart for justice. The God of the scriptures cares deeply for the poor and oppressed 
and responds to the cry of the needy. As Psalm 34 and 147 remind us, He is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Much of this book is about the people who are most affected by the brokenness of the world. Many of the stories told here, and we didn't have a chance to talk a lot about the stories. They're, they're wonderful stories there, which she uses to make her point in the differences between people. Um, but again, many of the stories told here, stories of oppression, injustice, rejection, isolation, and poverty are about people who have been crushed in spirit. We know that sometimes that's how we make friends of people that we've misunderstood, to hear their story, to listen to their story. And it's so easy to lump people together with, with others. In the midst of such, again, she's writing, in the midst of such harsh realities and pain, what does it mean to have persistent hope? What do you think it means? And these days when we just hear about growing spread of the, of the virus and we hear about um, so much hatred in the world. She talks about a historian who wrote, quote, hope does not demand a belief in progress. It demands a belief in justice, a conviction that the wicked will suffer, that wrongs will be made right, that the underlying order of things is not flouted with impurity. Hope implies a deep-seated trust in life that appears absurd to most who lacked it. Beyond hashtag activism is seeking the kind of hope that he writes about, a hope that is set firm on the foundation and belief that God is the God who makes things right. He is good. He is powerful. He is just. We rest in the hope that the realities we see in the world today are not the end of the story. Again, we rest in the hope that the realities we see in the world today are not the end of the story. Love drives out fear. Love drives out hatred. One of Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous quotes is, Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too burden, too great a burden to bear. Don't forget then how precious life is and how powerful love is. Tell someone now that you love him or her. Pray for peace as if it depended on you alone. And come back next Sunday and amplify with us.